All right, will you join me in prayer? God, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as your scriptures are read and as your word is proclaimed, that we would hear with joy what it is that you say to us today. Amen. All right, this morning, we're going to be talking about crabs in a barrel. Has anyone ever heard of that expression before? Do we know what that means? All right. Let's see, do we have a picture of, there they are. Um, no crabs were harmed in the stealing of this photo off Google, I assure you. Um, so we're not familiar with that. All right, so a note for our online listeners that are gonna be listening, go back and read Mark 6, one to 13 that Pastor Jennifer read, because otherwise crabs in a barrel will not make sense. All right, so we have to have heard the first part of the scripture to understand what this means. So we'll start with a story. When I was in college and I had no money, I needed to find a way to support a surfing habit, okay? So I had a friend whose dad had a crab boat. And so this, during crab season, this guy would roll in with his boat at like 3 to 4 a.m. Um, with his traps loaded up with crabs. And my roommate and I would meet him there um, in order to make some really good under-the-table cash, right? And so our job was really simple. I said that on, can I get in trouble for saying that? Scott? Okay, all right. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. Um, I'm like, why did I write that? It's just not smart. Man. So our job was actually a really simple one, right? You're supposed to take these crabs um, out of the traps and place them in these giant barrels, right? Now, if anyone's ever worked with crabs, like the first day of work when I did this, I was terrified of these little creatures, right? Um, those pinchers could snap off my little phalanges in a second, like a toothpick if, if I wasn't careful. So I was pretty scared of them, but then you quickly get the hang of it, right? And then you would fill these barrels up with the crabs. And my biggest question is, when we got to the top, we just move on to the next barrel. And I asked the guy, I'm like, there's no lid on the barrel. Like, aren't the crabs just all going to walk out? And he said, no. It's this thing called like crab mentality or crabs in a barrel. When one crab tries to crawl out of the bucket, what do the other crabs do? They grab them. They grab onto them, they hold on, and they drag the crabs back into the barrel, okay? Um, this is like a real thing. Um, they call it, and so we have a, like an expression for it. We'll say crabs in a barrel or in a bucket or it's just crab mentality, right? As soon as one crab tries to climb out, the other ones refuse to let them do it. Um, they would never let one of their own escape the barrel, right? They're all in this thing together, and they want to make sure that not one crab exceeds like the misfortunes of the group, all right? Um, and so the group is always going to undermine the efforts of the individual. Um, and if they, it's like, it's, how would you say this? It's like, if I can't have it, then neither can you. That would sum up crab mentality, right? And so, like, we humans, we don't ever exhibit that type of behavior, do we? Like, can we relate to that? Um, like, I was thinking about it. I'm like, if we're honest, we sometimes have a hard time with the success of others. We find all kinds of ways to knock people down, drag them back down to our level. Um, at least I can speak for myself. And so we, too, can thwart the success of any individual who succeeds beyond the group. We, too, can suffer from crab mentality. And so the scripture that we are in today comes in three different sections. The first two uh, we've already read. 
Um, it began with like Jesus as the crab. Am I allowed to say that? <laughs> it began with Jesus. I think this is going to make sense, right? Jesus as a crab in the barrel as the people of Jesus's hometown of Nazareth. They're going to have an impossible time seeing him for who he really is. Okay? And they're going to do whatever it takes to drag him back down to their level. And so what I'm going to hope today is that by the end of this message, what we're going to see is that the message of good news, um, as proclaimed by Jesus and his courageous cousin John the Baptist, who we're going to get to in a moment, um, will not be silenced because the fact is the truth has already made its way out. The crabs are already out of the barrel. Once out, hard to get them back in. That's what I hope we learn. And so Jesus has returned to his hometown, and there he meets all kinds of resistance. In Mark chapter 3, his family was actually trying to get him to come home. Three chapters later, Jesus shows up. He's been touring all over the place, and what does he find? He finds himself completely unwelcomed in his own hometown, right? This is what happens everywhere Jesus has been. We've seen over the last like month and a half, everywhere he's been, he's been calling people away from a life of fear and calling them into a life of faith. And people have been responding all over the place. Not in Nazareth. On the Sabbath, he enters the local synagogue. People, it says, were amazed at his, at his teaching. They were amazed at his deeds of power, but how short-lived was that amazement? The next sentence, right, says that they became offended. From amazed to offended in two sentences. Why? Crabs in a barrel, right? They suffer from crab mentality. In this small town of Nazareth, everyone knew everyone. They know Jesus' family, his brothers and his sisters. They know where he's from. They know the stock he comes from. Who does this Jesus think he is, right? They think they know who he really is. They know who his family is. He's just Mary and Joseph's son, the son of a carpenter. This is what it says. They have this low opinion or vision of Jesus because they have a low opinion of themselves. And they can't see this Jesus succeeding higher than where they view themselves. They can't allow him to succeed beyond the level of their success. And so they're offended because Jesus breaks this mold, this notion of who they are or who they could become, and they don't want to be shown up by Jesus. And so Jesus is kind of busting their paradigm because we all know this, a crab's natural habitat is not in the bucket, right? And so Jesus isn't just for Nazareth. Jesus is for the world. And so to the world, Jesus will go. Now, Nazareth was four miles from this city called Sepphoris. And trying to explain why the offense in his hometown, this, uh, why the offense here, and I just, here's one possible explanation. Just a few miles away is the city Sepphoris, right? That was known to be pretty sympathetic toward Roman occupation, which is pretty rare in the region. A.D. 66, Sepphoris was a city that refused to join the Jewish revolt against Rome. Highly unusual, right? And so maybe Nazareth is afraid to risk. Maybe they're afraid to raise their voice in opposition against Rome. Maybe they're afraid to associate with Jesus 
And so they do their part to keep Jesus in the barrel. And so we see Jesus' mission stymied in Nazareth. He just, it says the scriptures, like, it just, he can't get it done there. So what does Jesus do? Think about this. He sends out the 12. That was the second part of this text that Pastor Jennifer read. He sends out the 12 on mission to carry on his mission. It says he sends them out two by two with next to nothing, totally reliant upon God, looking for these people of peace. Like that's what Luke calls them, people of peace, people who will welcome the good news, uh, people who were sick and needed healing. And all the crabs in Nazareth cannot stop Jesus's mission of good news from moving forward. It was too late because the truth was out. And once out, it couldn't be silenced. But then we have this devastating thing that happens while the 12 are away, which is where we're going to move into. We learn of the news that John the Baptist, Jesus's cousin, has been killed by King Herod. So here is the finish to today's story. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus's name had become known. Some were saying John the baptizer has been raised from the dead, and for this reason these powers are at work in him. But others said it's Elijah, and others said it's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For Herod himself had sent men who arrested John, bound him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife because Herod had married her. For John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to kill him. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he protected him. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his courtiers and officers and for the leaders of Galilee. When his daughter Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests, and the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he solemnly swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you even half of my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What should I ask for? She replied, The head of John the baptizer. Immediately she rushed back to the king and requested, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was deeply grieved, yet out of regard for his oaths and for his guests, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately the king sent a soldier of the guard with others to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother. When the disciples heard about it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The word of the Lord. How's that for a finish? Huh? Like this is getting, we, hopefully right away, we're like, this, this thing's getting serious, right? Back in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, we learned about John the Baptist, who is said to be the forerunner to Jesus. He's been arrested for six chapters in Mark. We had no idea what the outcome was, and we weren't told why he was arrested. But the answer seems to be that Mark is bringing it up now because the death of John is somehow tied to Jesus's expanding mission. The disciples are away. They're extending Christ's mission. Herod removes John's head. 
right? This marks the end of the innocence for the disciples. This marks a really significant turn in this gospel. Things are really getting, they're getting real, they're getting serious. Now, there's four Herods mentioned in the New Testament. The Herod of our story today is the second son of Herod the Great, Herod Antipas. He's the Tetrarch or the King of Galilee from about 4 BC until after Jesus' death. And just like his father before him, he's shrewd, he's wealthy, and he is ruthless. He's propped up by Rome. Herod's job is to keep all the crabs living peaceably in the barrel. John the Baptist was not to be contained. And so the story reads like a soap opera. Herod Antipas falls in love with Herodias, the wife of his half-brother, which presents all kinds of problems. In order to marry her, he first had to walk away, had to abandon his own wife, which he did. He did a lot of other terrible things, too, which we don't have time for. But when he hears about Jesus, the first thing that he thinks of, right, is this is John the Baptist. Come back. He's haunting me, you know? Um, and so he's thinking about this. He's like, John, you know, what he did to John the Baptist, severing John's head, did not silence the message. Just think about that one thing for the moment. Taking John's life did not silence John's message. This truth was going to get out. And so scripture calls John, right, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Herod was the one who attempted to silence that voice. He wanted John to stay in the barrel. He didn't want people to hear the truth of John's message because it implicated him in this illegal, immoral situation. But John kept speaking even from the grave through Jesus Herod hears John's message. So here in Mark, here's what he wants us to see. It doesn't work. It's futile. Herod can't silence John because other people will lend their voices. First, Jesus sends out the 12. Later, Jesus will send out the 70. And then throughout the centuries, millions of other voices will join their voices together in this chorus, right? Until the time in history when we join our voices to those voices that went before us. John the Baptist will be heard because we will make sure that truth is not silenced. So what was John's message to Antipas that got him killed? He criticized his illegal and his immoral marriage to his half-brother's wife. I'm sure John recited the two commandments in Leviticus that forbade marrying your brother's wife. Power doesn't take kindly to those who challenge it, those who meddle, those who get in the way. And John the Baptist is the Bible's great meddler, right? People in power have done and will do all kinds of things in order to maintain what they have. This crab mentality will justify anything they do in order to keep a tight lid on the barrel. Now, there was a first century Jewish historian, Josephus. He also wrote an account of this, the beheading of John. He reported that Herod was afraid of John's widespread influence over the people. So he struck first, he has him arrested before he believes that John could lead this uprising against him. Mark and Josephus, they're just two sides of the same coin. They both attest to the same thing. John's righteousness, his character, his piety, 
and also to Herod's ruthlessness and paranoia. Herod and John had John arrested and executed in order to silence public criticism. So this is what I wonder. I wonder if Mark's encouragement today is really just as simple as a statement like this, that truth needs a voice. Truth needs a voice. Prophetic action requires a voice. Truth needs to come out. It needs to illuminate darkness. But we see here, and we know from history and maybe from our own lives, that sometimes truth comes at a cost. This is what the disciples are learning through this period. That escaping the barrel costs John his life. The text foreshadows exactly what will later happen to Jesus. He's about to turn and face the city of Jerusalem. And when he does that, he turns and he faces the cross. The powers that be never want truth to come out. Power will fight and scratch and claw like a crab to keep the voices of truth in the barrel. John went before Jesus, um, who came after in the same way that we, as Jesus' disciples today, follow after. And following Jesus is to speak truth, to illuminate all kinds of injustices in the world around us. And Crop Hunger Walk does just that, right? It doesn't just deal with, it also highlights what are some of the, the like, systematic ways in which hunger affects people. How are we participating in that systemic problem. Crop does all of these kinds of things. And so Jesus is this disruptive force like John. He's not always welcomed. Jesus is not always seen as good news as we saw from the city of Nazareth, his own hometown. Some will find it offensive and will join together to attempt to keep that from coming out. But like for crabs, the barrel's not our natural habitat either. Jesus has tipped over this barrel. The crabs are running loose. They're escaping because Jesus is famous for saying something in John's gospel about the truth. Anyone remember what Jesus said? The truth will Set set you free. Okay? And so the powers that be would love for us to remain passive, following its lead to welcome only those that it welcomes, to extend mercy only those to whom it says deserve mercy. Power would like those in the barrel to remain complacent in order to keep truth silent. But tipping over the barrel, Jesus sends out the 12. There's now 12 people, not one. There's 12 people who are lending their voices and carrying the message forward. Jesus will then send the 70. Jesus will then send disciples over the last 2,000 years of every era until we get to us. Jesus will send us to join our voices, to join our lives with those who have gone before us, speaking truth, good news, that God is not just for Nazareth, not for some, but for the whole world. That mercy is to be extended to our friends and our enemies. to be extended to those we like and those we dislike, those we agree with and those we disagree with. But John and Jesus were thought to have been silenced. But what we see is that the voices of both are continued today. But this story certainly contains 
a warning. When you stand up and you lend your voice, I think what Mark is saying is that we should expect it to be costly. And at the risk of mixing animal metaphors, I love what Bible scholar Dale Bruner, who's one of my favorites, what he says about John the Baptist. This, this meant something to me when I read it. He says, there's no sacred cows in John's herd. How awesome is that? And he said, he didn't check the polls before speaking and acting. He protected no special interests. Plain and simple, John just did the right thing. And his courage and speaking out cost him his life. Jesus' disciples are learning that the world will no longer be a safe place for them moving forward. And they will all learn this eventually to the extreme. I think all but one of the 12 was martyred for their faith. And so as I was writing this message, I remembered this story from about a year and a half ago um, that speaks to our need to join our voices together uh, with those prophetic voices of the past. And this story just jumped out at me. I, I think I told this story one time right after it happened. There was a 91-year-old man, and he was visiting his family from Mexico. And he always comes to visit his family twice a year. I think this story was in the LA Times about a year ago or so. And while he was walking through the neighborhood park, like he always does when he's here visiting, he was assaulted by a woman and beaten with a concrete block. Does anybody remember this story? Okay. Um, and this is just like, I, I just can't, couldn't believe when I heard this story. Not only did she assault him and beat him with a concrete block, she enlisted three or four other men to also pick up bricks and assault this elderly gentleman. And while they were beating him, they have it on video, they're yelling at him to go back to Mexico, right? Now, I remember I brought this up with the guys that are in my small group that we meet on Fridays. And that small group consists of people from different churches and people with different political backgrounds. And I was curious to see what, what would people say about this. And one guy asked a really good question. He said, what's the church's role? It's an excellent question. What is the church's role? And he went on to kind of answer and say something like, he said that the church can get so self-focused and so fearful of someone getting upset that it sometimes fails to deal with the most pressing issues of our day. That's a word right there. And I've not forgotten when he said that. And I thought, he's right about that, right? Like individuals, groups can do the same thing. Groups of people, even churches, can be driven by fear, afraid to stand up and lend their voices to do the right thing. And so Jesus has been challenging everyone, this whole gospel so far up to chapter 6. He says, live, live by faith, stop living by fear. This is almost every week Jesus does something to challenge us to this, to a life of faith, um, and not to be afraid to speak out about all forms of injustice, even if it comes at a cost. And so there is one thing, when I thought about this story, there's one thing I'm absolutely certain of, we, and we all know this, right? John the Baptist, would he stand up and speak out against brick-wielding hate mongers? We know the answer to that question. John would stand up to that kind of stuff. 
And John might say something like, truth needs a voice. And to refuse to join our voices with John's would be to remain in the barrel. And we're reminded that Jesus has tipped over the barrel. We're all being sent out like the 12 that we saw at the beginning of our text, sent out into the world with the message of God's love that's wide enough to embrace the whole world. So may God grant you the courage that you need to follow Jesus more closely.